2 Corinthians, so 2 Corinthians chapter 10. We've covered the first nine chapters. If you're visiting with us here at Calvary Chapel, we go through a book chapter by chapter and verse by verse from beginning to end. So we have covered the first nine chapters. We'll be in chapter 10, starting at verse 1, reading here this morning. So if you'll turn there in the New Testament, 2 Corinthians chapter 10, and just kind of a little personal side note that we want to thank Josh Borges for coming and doing worship with us this morning. Josh is my nephew and um, my sister's son, and I've known Josh ever since he was born. And uh, <laughs> now he's married and uh, has three beautiful children and uh, on staff at North Country Chapel up in Idaho, uh, where my brother-in-law pastors a church up there. And uh, I'll be with your dad here um, later this evening when we meet for the pastor's conference. I'll be gone for a couple days this week, and, uh, and then I'll be back. So we're looking forward to that. Um, but uh, Travis is out of town, Jim's out of town, so that left me alone uh, this weekend. So he's at a family reunion and Travis uh, is gone as well. So we're thankful that Josh uh, got on a plane and came down to uh, lead us in worship this morning. So thank you, Josh, for doing that. Plus you make grandma very, very happy so, <laughs> and coming out. So he should be there, Second Corinthians chapter 10. Father, we ask that you just bless this time in the study of your word, and uh, what an incredible study this has been, and we want to continue to just uh, make application, because we know that this letter wasn't just written for them, it's written for us as well, Lord, and uh, because this is the written word, and uh, we're very thankful that we can be here again in this place, and just go through these verses, and make application, and be edified, and encouraged, and uplifted. So once again, we just uh, give this time to study of your word, and it's in Jesus' name that we pray, amen. And so if you've been with us on Sunday mornings, we journeyed uh, through 2 Corinthians. We know that the apostle named Paul is spending some time here in the first seven chapters, as we have read, defending his ministry. Because there are those that were in Corinth that had raised this challenge against Paul and questioned his ministry and authority as an apostle. So Paul is dealing with this issue, and, and we saw that he did that specifically in the first seven chapters. He just opens up his heart and shares in a way that he doesn't do in any other portion of scripture that is penned by him. And then as we saw over the last couple of weeks in chapters eight and nine, he would deal with the issue of giving. This, this congregation of Corinth was kind of holding back from a promise that they had given a year previously to Paul writing this letter. And that was, they were going to give to a collection that Paul was taking to take to the Christians there in uh, Jerusalem that were dealing with famine, that uh, were having a very difficult time. So Paul says that I, I want you to be able to give that which you committed to a year ago. And we know that Paul would write about the way that the churches up north in northern Greece were giving. They were giving freely. They were giving willfully. They were giving with urgency. In other words, Paul wasn't begging for money or being manipulative or putting pressure on them, but those churches wanted to give. They wanted to give to those saints that were hurting in Jerusalem. And so you Corinthian Christians, that you need to give in the same way. And many of you, you expressed how um, that was a blessing to go through those chapters and really see what the scripture has to say when it comes to our giving. And not just make an application for giving money, but also devotion and, and our service to the Lord, that we are to give freely and willingly and with urgency. That is, we want to give to the Lord because of His incredible grace, because we have given ourselves to the Lord. And so that was very helpful for you because 
we see the examples in the church and on Christian TV of the pressures and the manipulations and the false teachings that take place. So I hope and pray that was very helpful for you. And so Paul just uh, talking about all that, and then he would kind of end chapter 9 by giving thanks to God uh, in his indescribable gift, that is the person of Jesus Christ, who came to this world, would go to the cross of Calvary and die for you and for me, that we might have forgiveness of sin and salvation. You see, the Lord has given to us freely, hasn't he? He's given to us willingly and cheerfully because of his love for us. And so when you read that last verse there in chapter 9, it seems that, and, and seems that it would be logical to be the end of the letter. He has defended his ministry. He has exhorted them to take care of this manner of giving to the Jerusalem saints. Hey, I'm going to send Titus and some other men to you to make sure that you complete the doing of what you committed to. And he kind of has this ending statement. Hey, thanks be to God for his indescribable, or if you have a King James, it reads unspeakable gift, the gift of God's Son, Jesus Christ. So as you follow the flow of, of Paul's writing and thoughts, it seems as though this, again, would be a good place to end the epistle. Now you might say, what do you mean by that, Pastor Jeff? Because there's still four more chapters left in this book, this, this letter, chapters 10 through 13. Well, I want to give you kind of an interesting side note just for you to consider, and, and, and some of you might find this to be interesting. Chapters 10 and 13, as we pick it up here, are real intense again. It is, Paul is dealing with them, he, it, once again, about defending his ministry, defending his ministry that he brought to them. He doesn't hold back from them at all. He really lays it on them straightforwardly and very pointedly. He doesn't dance around the issue of defending his apostleship and the ministry and how he came to them. And some scholars have looked at this and said, why would Paul defend his ministry, chapters 1 through 7, and in defending his ministry, he would also give thanks that they had responded to him. Titus came and met Paul and uh, gave a report that the Corinthians are responding to that letter that he wrote to them, uh, a letter that has been called the missing epistle. And so why would he defend his ministry and calling and um, having that tone there in the first seven chapters? Uh, and then all of a sudden, then he talks about giving. And one of the things that you don't do is that after you talk to uh, you know, a congregation of people about giving, then just start being real harsh to them once again. So there are those who have looked at this and they have said, well, it doesn't really flow very uh, logically as he defends his ministry, he, he asks for giving, and in defending his ministry, of course, he's always expressing his love and his care for them. He does it very tenderly, he does it very carefully, but he is very pointedly as well in making uh, his points that he wants to do. And so some have suggested that these last four chapters, that really what they are is an entirely different letter that have been tacked on the first nine chapters. You see, you've got to remember this, that the translators, they're the ones that added the chapter divisions and verses, which would help us in looking up Bible verses. So when Paul wrote this epistle, he didn't write, you know, chapter 1, verse 24, and now chapter 2. That's what the translators did later and added the chapter divisions and verses so we can look up those verses. This here originally was a letter much like how we write letters. 
And so some scholars believe that chapters 10 and 13 was just tacked on to chapters 1 through 9. Now you recall that as we have discussed quite extensively in chapter 2, verse 4, in chapter 7, verse 8, remember Paul was talking about a letter that he wrote to them, which was hard for him to write. He says that I wrote it with many tears and with anguish of heart and with affliction and with sorrow. I, I regretted it, but I didn't regret it. He wrote that harsh letter, and it is very unlikely he's not making reference to 1 Corinthians, and most scholars agree that he is not. You see, 1 Corinthians was that corrective letter that he wrote, but he was answering questions as well that they had written to Paul as Chloe's household came to Ephesus to talk to Paul and said, hey, they have questions on a letter that you originally wrote, and uh, so they have questions about certain doctrine, and, uh, and Paul addresses those questions, but then he would also address some carnality and immorality and division that was taking place in the church. So most scholars believe that in 2 Corinthians, in that letter that he's writing about, that he makes reference to that was very hard to write. Yes, I do it with affection. I do it with love because I want you to do well in the things of Christ that they have said that that's the missing epistle. And so some had said that chapters 10 through 13 is that missing epistle. And the reason is because Paul, as we're going to see, is going to reintroduce himself. I, Paul, plead with you. And then he's going to address very, very pointedly and right away about this, this division that was in the church, these super apostles and prophets that are coming along and causing this division and putting Paul down and they're elevating themselves and Paul gets right to it and he's going to come with a tone that we have never really seen before and he is going to then address and defend his ministry and his apostleship once again. So some have suggested that perhaps that missing epistle is what we're going to be reading in chapters 10 through 13. So a little note of interest for those of you who like to think about things like that. We can't say for sure, um, but uh, we'll find out when we get to heaven. So let's begin. We do know one thing, that chapters 10 through 13 is inspired by God. It's in the canon of Scripture. Let's begin to read it as, Now I, Paul, myself, am pleading with you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ, who in presence am lowly among you, but being absent and bold towards you. So you can already see the change of tone. He says, Hey, you Corinthians, I'm pleading with you. And that word plead, when you see it in the Scriptures, it's a strong word. It's like he's saying, I'm begging you. Uh, I'm telling you, pay attention. I'm pleading with you. I'm speaking to you as Christ would, with meekness and with gentleness, when I'm with you and as I'm writing to you. I'm lowly. Interesting that Jesus in John or Matthew chapter 11, that as he was standing on a hillside in Galilee, he would cry out, come to me, all of you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am what? Gentle and meek that is lowly in heart and it's the only time that jesus really describes himself gives those characteristics of himself i'm meek and i'm gentle lowly in heart and here paul says that i'm coming to you pleading with you as christ would in meekness and in gentleness now keep in mind that meekness listen does not mean weakness it does not mean as a christian as we are called to be leaders, as we're called to lead in the home, as, as we're called to lead and, and wherever that 
we are placed, and, and I'm called to be a leader in the church, that I am to lead with meekness and gentleness according to the scriptures, to take on the same characteristics of Jesus. But as I do that, leading in meekness, it does not mean that I lead in weakness. I'm not to be just this wet noodle and, and weak spiritually, and I'm to be humble but not to be weak. I'm to have meekness, which means actually strength, but it's strength under control. Jesus was not weak, but he was meek. And he took on those religious leaders. And he didn't hold back from them in rebuking them. And so Paul confronting the Corinthians in meekness and in gentleness and what they were saying about Paul. Hey, Paul, you're lowly in person and, and you're reserved in person and your speech is contemptible. And you may be hard and you may be bold in your letters, but there was this point of contention between the Christians in Corinth and Paul. And they were saying that he's lowly, he isn't impressive physically, and we will see that Paul gives very clear indication that they poked fun at his physical appearance. They made fun of his speech. There is a secondary or second century that is document that was found and it gives uh, a physical description of Paul. It was dated, this book, about 150 AD. It was called The Acts of Paul and Thecla. And what it is, is it's a book that describes an individual in the book that would go out to meet Paul on one of Paul's missionary journeys. And so this individual, not knowing what Paul looked like, and they didn't have you know, pictures that you can send through you know, blogs or emails or through Facebook or anything like that, so a description of Paul was given to him so he could know what Paul looked like. And in this document, it indicates that Paul the Apostle was small in stature. That it goes on to read that his legs were bowed, that he had a bald head and his, had bushy eyebrows and had a long hooked nose and had runny eyes. And it also says that his body was scarred. Of course, Paul would be stoned and left for dead and he was beaten with rods and and he went through such turmoil and difficulties and tribulations and persecutions. It said his back was stooped and he walked with the limp. And his voice was very high pitched. But one of the other things that it also says that his face was the face, the countenance of an angel. And so here is Paul the Apostle coming into to town. Not very impressive physically. And here the Corinthians were making fun of him. They said, oh, he writes a mean letter, but they were poking at Paul. They were getting in their digs, and we continue here in verse 2. But Paul says, I beg you, once again, I plead with you, now I beg you, that when I am present, I may not be bold with that confidence by which I intend to be bold against some who think of us as if we walked according to the flesh. So Paul didn't make or want to come to them in boldness, but in gentleness. And now he says in verse 2 that I intend to be bold against some. So it wasn't all the Corinthians that had this attitude towards Paul, but it was those who were coming in, who were designed to be leaders, who were teaching false doctrine, who were exalting themselves and causing this division. And it was those who were coming along and saying that uh, Paul is lowly and base, he's not impressive, don't listen to him, and it was causing headaches for Paul and causing division. And he says that as they would come, as they, you know, he walks according to the flesh, Paul does. So Paul now does talk about this walking in the flesh according to the flesh, verse 3, for though we walk in the flesh, 
we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty in God, for pulling down strongholds, casting down arguments, and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. So Paul talking about this warring that goes on within us. He says, we walk in the flesh, verse 3, and indeed we all do. We're all flesh and blood, but we do not war according to the flesh. And those who were, were coming against him were using words to try to bring Paul down and discredit him. They were deceitful. They were very manipulative. They were accusing him of walking in the flesh, verse 2. They, they were bringing all kinds of bitter accusation against the apostle. So Paul responds by saying, we walk in the fleshly body, but our warfare is not after the flesh. Now you might recall in the book of Ephesians, chapter 6, a very familiar portion of scripture, that we read that finally as Paul writes, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might, and put on the whole armor of God, that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in heavenly places. Therefore, you take up the whole armor of God. And then in that section of scripture, you know that Paul goes into detail explaining to us what is the armor of God, girding your, your waist with truth and the breastplate of righteousness, having sawed your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace, and having the shield of faith and the helmet of salvation, and then the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. So Paul recognized that the people that came against him and put him down, persecuted him, and fought against his authority, they were people that God loved, but the enemy was using them to do this battle against Paul. And so Paul says, we don't battle against flesh and blood, but spiritual wickedness in high places. And we as Christians, listen, we need to remember that we fight a spiritual battle. And it's not just a fleshly battle. Now, all of us, as I mentioned, are flesh and blood. We have this body, don't we? Paul called it in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, we have these earthly tents, as he would say. And so we have flesh and blood, we're, we're this, not very impressive here. And, and then we also have a spirit, and that's the real you, that's the real me. The spirit lives on. You recall that when Nicodemus came to Jesus in John chapter 3, and Nicodemus came to him, and Jesus said, Nicodemus, if you want to see the kingdom of God, you must be born again. And Nicodemus, who was a brilliant man, John chapter 3 calls him the master teacher in Israel. He was struggling with that. He was watching Jesus. He said, we know that you come from God because you would not be able to do the things that you do unless God were with him. And Nicodemus, Jesus responded by saying that you must be born again. And here was Nicodemus. Here's a man, the master teacher of Israel, that dedicated his life to teaching his students about the law and keeping of the law, and that's what makes you righteous. And all of a sudden, here is Jesus that is saying, if you want to see the kingdom of God, Nicodemus, you must be born again. And Nicodemus, you can sense the struggling that's going on in, in his heart. He's saying, like, help me. What do you mean? Can a man enter his mother's womb a second time? And Jesus said, unless one is born of water and spirit, you cannot enter the kingdom of God. Nicodemus, don't you know that which is born of the flesh is flesh? 
But that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. And so for us to go to heaven, we must be born again of the Spirit. And those who have not accepted the crucified and buried and risen Christ into their hearts and received forgiveness of sin are dead spiritually. Do you know that? Ephesians chapter 2 declares it. Even when we were dead in trespasses, that God, he has made us alive together with Christ. And I don't know about you, but when I came to Christ, I felt alive for the very first time in my spirit. I really did. I didn't realize how dead I really felt. It was born again by the Spirit of God. And as we come to him, we're born again. So we're flesh and blood. We have this spirit, and wedged between the flesh and the spirit is the soul. That is your mind and your emotions. And even though Satan knows that he has lost the war when it comes to your spirit, he's been defeated. He has no authority over us. Do you know that? Colossians chapter 2 reads that concerning what Jesus did for us on the cross of Calvary, that he wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us, which was contrary to us, and he's taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross, having disarmed principalities and powers, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in it. So Jesus has defeated Satan. He has been stripped of his authority. He has been stripped of it. Disarmed principalities. That word literally in the Greek means they've been stripped. And he made a public spectacle of them. And we who are born again belong to God. Our salvation secure. But Satan will still battle against us. And where that battle happens so often is that area of the soul, the mind, the emotions. We know that Satan's like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. First Peter chapter 5, verse 8. And Revelation chapter 12, verse 9 that we went over not long ago on Wednesday night is that he's the accuser of the brethren who accuses us day and night. So he will come and he will battle with our souls. He will accuse you and me trying to mess up our minds bring you into despair and defeat and discouragement and bondage he will tempt you with fleshly desires and greed and pleasure he will try to get you to be full of fear to hate to be unforgiving to be bitter to be jealous to be angry he will battle with your mind and emotions any way that he can and that's where the spiritual battle is and every time that we commit sin or we continue in sin it's like satan is building this stronghold against us and paul tells us here that we don't war according to the flesh our weapons of our warfare are not carnal but is mighty in god for the pulling down of strongholds it is a spiritual battle and we are to use spiritual weapons and we need to recognize that the devil will come against us and we are to use the spiritual weapons that are at our disposal which are listed there in ephesians chapter 6. you see the problem can be is when we try to fight our spiritual war with carnal weapons it doesn't work it's not fighting in the energies of the flesh it's not the world's philosophy or the world's ways or thinking that if I pursue the world's pleasures that that's really going to help me. That's not the answer. And what's going to see us through ultimately, the weapons of our warfare are not carnal. It is not fleshly energies. We don't have victory because of our fleshly efforts. We don't fight against fleshly energies, Ephesians 6, and our text here, 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 3. But we use a whole different arsenal, don't we, to pull hold... Uh, to pull down those strongholds. Those strongholds which will hold us in bondage to sin and defeat and discouragement. 
So Paul, inspired by the Spirit of God, he says, for us to pull down those strongholds, you need to be using weapons not of the world and not of the flesh, but spiritual weapons. We need to understand we do have an enemy. And Satan comes against us. And I can't fight against him and, and, and his henchmen in the energies of my flesh or humanism or worldly wisdom. And my battle isn't ultimately against people, flesh and blood, but it is spiritual. And God has allowed me to put on the whole armor of God. You take on the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, and you stand and you live in the promises of God. And to combat the enemy, you come with the word of testimony and the blood of the Lamb, as Revelation chapter 12 tells us. You answer him and you say, you know what, you can accuse me all you want, Satan. But God loves me, and he's forgiven me, and I belong to him, and I am forgiven, and he has forgotten my sin. And you put on the whole armor of God, and this morning we don't go into Ephesians chapter 6 specifically, but I would refer you to that chapter because it's very important for us to know it if we're really desiring to live a victorious, spirit-filled, abundant life in Christ. You live a life of holiness, of godliness. You live in the truth of God's word. You meditate on the things of the Lord. You renew your minds in the promises of God. And as you do, the strongholds will begin to come down. None of us, as a child of God, needs to be harassed by Satan. You have the authority and the power through Christ, not your own energies, to put the enemy to flight. And the promise of the book of James is, is that you resist the devil, submit to God, and the devil will flee from you. Not that he might flee from you, but you resist the devil, you submit to God, and he will flee from you with his tail between his legs. But if you try to fight that spiritual battle by fleshly weapons, you know what's going to happen? That battle is going to go on, and it's going to go on, and it's going to go on, and it's going to wear you down. And you're going to be beaten up, and you're going to be weak and downcast. So our warfare is not carnal, but mighty in God for pulling down strongholds. Paul continues here, verse 5, casting down argument and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God. Bring every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ, as we read. So if you rely on carnal weapons, carnal methods, it will contradict the true knowledge of God. Now in Colossians chapter 2, verse 8, we were told, Beware lest anyone cheat you through philosophy or empty deceit according to the tradition of men, according to the basic principles of this world, and not according to Christ. And in this battle, this warring inner minds for the mind that takes place, if I have the mind which is carnal, which is fleshly, then I'm going to reap corruption. But if I have the mind of the Spirit, I'm going to have joy and peace, and life, Paul wrote in Romans chapter 8, verse 6, you recall. To be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. So Satan will try to captivate your life and, and, and think about the tools, the weapons that Satan has at his disposal to try to captivate your mind. They will take you away from the Lord. The abundance and the availability of pornography, the worldly pleasures, the images on the TV sets or the DVDs that we watch, the violence. There is so much deception all around us. And if you want to be healthy spiritually, 
you and I, we need to be standing in the strength and the power of the Holy Spirit. And we better be grounded in the Word of God. And we need to determine within our hearts some purpose in our hearts to walk in the ways of the Lord, or else you will find yourself being brought into captivity of the enemy in your mind and in the bondage of your flesh. Listen, folks, it is not easy. I don't need to tell you this. But it isn't easy for us to live a godly life in a sense that just about every ungodly pressure is against us. And we cannot in our own efforts and flesh and religiosity maintain a healthy spiritual life. We must take on and use everything available to us through Christ if you're going to stand in these days. Otherwise, you're going to be blasted. And you're going to be battered. And you're going to feel defeated. These are perilous times. Paul continues, verse 6, and being ready to, to punish all disobedience when your obedience is fulfilled. Paul once again talking to those in Corinth, his desire for them to put away those carnal weapons and be obedient. And do you look at things according to the outward appearance? If anyone is convinced in himself that he is Christ, let him again consider this in himself, that just as he is Christ, even so we are Christ. You're making fun of me? about my appearance, and I think Paul is saying, are you serious that you're going to judge me and others according to their physical appearance? As they were saying that Paul's so base, he's so wimpy, and, and we're great, and, and we're really of Christ. And there were those in Corinth that had that mindset. And of course, the Greek culture, the physical body and having the perfect body was important to them. And then speech and oratory skills and eloquence and all of this was important. And so they were saying, Paul, he's just an ordinary man. Paul, when he came to Corinth, he didn't come using methods of advertising. He didn't use marketing skills. He didn't come to Corinth in a three-piece suit to put on a Madison Avenue campaign. He was not one of the personality boys. He was not a celebrity Christian. He didn't use cleverness and cute cliches and soared to heights and beautiful language. Matter of fact, in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 2, he said, I came to you preaching nothing but Jesus Christ and Him crucified. He knew that people needed Jesus or they were going to be eternally lost. He didn't play the games that some of those in Corinth were playing, that some today play. And he's, they were saying he's so homely. He's a tent maker. He's dressed in sweaty clothes. We're sophisticated. We're dignified. We're really of Christ. And Paul says, you need to consider this. Know this. You who judge according to appearance, we are of Christ too. Paul knew that it was important, that that was the heart. And that the Lord sees the heart. And of course, we know that story, that when Samuel went to anoint David as the king of Israel, that first he looked at his eldest brother, Eliab, and said, surely this is the Lord's anointed before me. And the Lord says, Samuel, don't look at the physical stature because I've refused him. Don't look at his appearance, for the Lord doesn't see as a man sees, for a man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. And Paul, he is tying in this thought, hey, you judge me in appearance, but we are of Christ. And it ties it in together because he knows that the Lord will judge not the physical appearance, but the heart. And we've already seen that Paul has written about that one day we will all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. And we will be judged according to the things that we have done in the body, according to what it was good or bad. And we talked about that quite extensively. Not being judged for our sins. Jesus already took the judgment for that on Calvary's cross. But as believers, we will stand before the Bema reward seat, is what the Greek reads, of Christ. To be rewarded for what we have done. And our works are going to be tried by fire, 1 Corinthians chapter 3. 
and it's going to be likened to gold, silver, precious metals, the things that we did for Christ in a right motivation and a love for Him. Paul wrote that it's the love of Christ that compels us, or whether we did it to exalt our own selves, which is like in the wood, hay, and stubble, and will burn up on that day. So he says, you judge me according to outward appearance. You're all mixed up, for we are of Christ. In verse 8, for even if I should boast somewhat more about our authority, which the Lord gave us for edification and not for your destruction. And I believe it made Paul uncomfortable to write about his own authority. He was a humble, godly man. He saw himself as a bondservant of Jesus Christ. And I've come to, to, to boast somewhat more. And he uses that word, I think, almost sarcastically, in a sense, to show that he would prefer not to talk about himself. It would be better if you Corinthians recognize that God has given me this authority. I'm not here to tear you down. I'm not here to have dominion over you, but to be helpers of your joy. And in verse 8, we continue reading, I shall not be ashamed, lest I seem to terrify you by letter. So those who criticized Paul, it was like they were saying, he writes a mean letter, you know, um, but he's not going to follow through. Uh, and Paul's saying, I'm being straight with you. I'm not bluffing. And not just trying to scare you by letter, for his letters, they say, are weighty and powerful, but his bodily presence is weak and his speech contemptible. Perhaps the high voice, some have suggested that it gives hint that maybe, just perhaps, that he stuttered a little bit like Moses did. We don't know for sure. But they made fun of his speaking style and his, you know, speech is, you know, not impressive and his physical appearance is... Is, is not to be desired. And verse 11, let such a person consider this, that, we, that what we are in word by letters when we are absent, such we will also be indeed when we are present. Know this, it, our letters are heavy. And when I come to you in person, I'm going to be heavy as well. You want the tough Paul? You're going to get him when I come to you with all the authority that I've shown in my letters. And then we're going to conclude with verse 12. For we dare not class ourselves or compare ourselves with those who commend themselves, but they measuring themselves by themselves and comparing themselves among themselves are not wise. So there are those guys that were causing Paul these problems. They would be comparing themselves with others. And they'd be talking, and, and talk would spread throughout the church. Hey, here's the top ten preachers, and Paul wasn't in the top ten. And Paul is saying that my ministry isn't about that. I don't compare myself to others. Listen, a couple more minutes, but this is really important. It is not wise. It is foolish to compare yourself to others. Why? Because it will do one of two things. It will either puff you up. Hey, look how spiritual I am. I'm a lot more spiritual than him or her. And you can always find somebody that you're more spiritual than. You might have to go to Skid Row, but <laughs> you can always find somebody that, you know, that you're doing better. And it's not wise because the standard in which we are to measure up to is not any man, but the Son of Man, Jesus Christ. And we all fall short in that comparison. So you can always find somebody that's doing a little bit worse than you. And you start to get puffed up. Hey, I'm great, I'm okay because I'm more spiritual. Or... If you do that, and, and let me just say that, anyone who tries to build themselves up by comparing themselves to, to other people is a person who's very insecure. So I will either get puffed up or what usually happens, it'll pull me down and I get very discouraged. I hear them, I see them, wow, look at them, they're great, they have a great life. 
And a lot of people spend a whole lot of time in life wishing they could be somebody else or have their life, and it's not wise and it's foolish. You know, we've talked about Jehoshaphat. Jehoshaphat in 1 Kings, he was a good king. And we talked about him when it tells us in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 14, not to be yoked with unbelievers. And Jehoshaphat, even though he was a good king and a godly king, he would go up north to the kings of Israel who were wicked kings, and uh, he would yoke himself to them. And he would have these relationships with them and with Ahab and Azariah. And Ahab, he goes up there, as we discussed not long ago. And here's Ahab, the king of Israel, very wicked king, and uh, plunged the ten northern tribes deep, deep into Baal worship. And so Jehoshaphat goes up to see him. And, and Ahab, you recall, said, hey, Jehoshaphat, I want to do battle against the Syrians. Well, don't you join in with us. And so Jehoshaphat says, sure, we'll be as you are. My people will be your people. And so Jehoshaphat was just drawn to Ahab. And you recall that in 1 Kings, and we discussed that it was Jehoshaphat that said, let's, let's listen to a prophet. Do you have a prophet that will come? And Micaiah came along and he prophesied and he said, Ahab, you guys are going to be defeated and you're going to die in battle. You're going to be put to death. And so they went ahead with the battle. And, and here's the thing. As Jehoshaphat says, we'll join in with you. And Ahab says, great, here's the plan. Jehoshaphat, what you're going to do is you're going to wear my robes and wear my crown when you go out in the battle. And Jehoshaphat goes, wow, really? I get to be you? Now, why he would do that is a great mystery to me, especially when it was prophesied at Ahab, you're going to be put to death. But it's just human tendency to want to be somebody else, to do what somebody else is doing. And Jehoshaphat, who is a good king and a great guy, put on the robes of Ahab and he puts on his crown. He goes out to battle and is raging. And guess what happens? The Syrians say, look, look at that chariot. It's Ahab. He's wearing his kingly robes and his crown. Let's go get him. And it says that the Syrians surrounded Jehoshaphat, was going to kill him. And he cried out to the Lord, and the Lord delivered him. So often we can spend so much in life saying, if I just had their talents, if I can just have their ministry, if I can just have their life, if I can just wear their robes and put on their crown. And that's exactly what the enemy wants you to do. So he can take a lot of shots at you. And here is Ahab setting up Jehoshaphat to be killed. And Jehoshaphat saying, look at me, I'm Ahab Jr. You know, Ahab wannabe. I'll dress like him, I'll talk like him. And he realized that a lot of shots were being taken at him. And the same thing will happen with you and me. If you desire to try to be somebody else that you're not, and you begin to compare yourself to others or in other areas of your life, you start thinking, why aren't my kids like th those kids, you know? Those kids that I know, why, why, you know, aren't I wife like I see her? Why aren't I a husband like him? Why don't we have the house that they have? Why don't we have the life that they have? And it ends up affecting us and defeating us. And the enemy will use that to take a lot of shots at you to discourage you. Listen, just be who you are and be content because the Lord loves you and he has a marvelous, wonderful plan for you and he made you the way that you are that you can be a blessing to others. Don't be comparing yourself to others, all right?
You keep looking to the Lord and allow the Lord to do that work that He wants to do in your life. Well, let's end there. And Father, we, we thank You for this time and study of Your Word and just the encouragement that comes as we just continue to look to Your Word and the instructions. And Lord, how easy it is that we can just compare ourselves to others when the only one that we are to compare ourselves is Jesus Christ and all of us fall short. We shall fall short of the glory of God because we have sinned. And Father, as we get ready to come to the communion table, we want to take a minute. And I just pray that if there's anyone that's perhaps sitting in a coffee shop or that's in this sanctuary, or if you're listening to this message on the radio, that you have never, never surrendered your heart to Jesus Christ. That just as Jesus told Nicodemus, he says to everyone else that you must be born again. And that means that you yield your heart to Jesus. You repent from going after the way of the world and you turn to Jesus for forgiveness of sin because the wages of sin is death. And you're spiritually dead. And Jesus right now is knocking on the door of your heart if you've never surrendered for you to open up your heart. If you don't know what would happen if your life was to end today, no. And come to Jesus and be born again. It's, it simply means you recognize your need for the Savior of the world. No one else can save you. Nothing else can save you. It is Jesus Christ alone and Him crucified. He died for your sins on Calvary's cross. And He was put into a grave and He rose again. He defeated sin and death. And you can know that you have forgiveness of sin and the hope of heaven as you come and believe on the name of Jesus Christ and who He is and what He's done for you. Open up your heart to Him, if that means anything to anyone here this morning. You pray, Jesus, come into my life and be my Lord and Savior. I repent, I turn to you. I realize my need for you to be my Savior and my Lord because you are the King of kings and the Lord of lords. I believe in you that you rose from the grave after you died for me on Calvary's cross. Thank you for dying for my sins. Forgive me. And thank you for loving me. And help me to live for you all the days of my life. Oh, thank you, Jesus, that you went willingly and freely as you gave yourself for me. I yield my life to you right now. If that is you, anyone in this place, and even if you're out in a coffee shop, because we have elders out there, we want to minister to you. I want you to raise your hand. Anybody coming to Christ this morning, just raise your hand. I'm not going to prolong it, but we're going to come to the communion table, and we just want to make sure that, that you take a communion because you're a believer in Christ, and, and you remember what Jesus Christ has done for you. Anybody coming to Christ this morning, just raise your hand. If you're out in a coffee shop, you can do that as well. And Father, we do come right now to the communion table and we ask that as the elements are passed out that we would hold on to them and we're going to partake of them together as we just remember what Jesus has done for us and going to Calvary's cross and provided forgiveness of sin and, for, and Lord, the hope of heaven. In Jesus' name. The ushers are going to hold out, pass 